I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. Dr. Andre Perry has made exploration of race and structural inequality, especially as it affects education and economic inclusion, his life's work. One of the many things that makes him exceptional is his gift for communicating what his findings mean in ways that make the need for action undeniable. Andre is a Pittsburgh native and is a David M. Rubenstein Fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. His writing regularly appears in his column for the Heckinger Report, as well as in The Nation, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. He is, as a recent profile of him said in its headline, ever cool and one of the smartest people I know. Let's get to it. Let's go. Andre Perry, thanks so much for being here. Uh, Thanks for having me. I've had the privilege of spending part of the last 24 hours with you, and you're a high-energy man who clearly is on a mission, and I love the fact that Pittsburgh is part of that mission. I want to go back to why you do the work you do, and a good place to begin is probably your childhood. There's a story about where you began your family and how you began to even think about this work. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that the way the story goes, when I was born, an uh, older woman by the name of Elsie Boyd came to McGee's Women's Hospital, where I was born, to visit my mother my biological mother, and she agreed to take me to her home in Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania, to raise me. Now, we weren't sure if I was going to stay there for weeks, months, but I ended up staying there for years. I did learn that my mother was probably abused or hurt by my father. But when I was essentially informally adopted by this woman, my older brother came along with me. But then later on, more kids started coming along. So I was raised in a house with about 12 to 15 kids over a course of my high school. Some would stay for a few weeks. Some stayed for longer periods of time. We all shared a common bond that times were hard in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. I was born in 1970, so the steel industry started to decline at that point. There was high unemployment, and as the saying goes, when white people catch a cold, black folk catch pneumonia. <laughs> but always had this belief in brothers and sisters. We weren't necessarily um, related, but we were brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters. My father, he was murdered in prison outside of Detroit. And so I rarely talked about his life really till recently. Did you know at the time that he died? I didn't know. My family told me that he died breaking up a fight in prison, and they said it in a way that sort of expressed that he was a good person. Right. He was the hero of yeah, the story. That's yeah. right. And at the time, I kind of just ignored it because I said, ah, he, he died in prison. He's not much of a humanitarian at that point. But it's also because I accepted this narrative that people in jail were inherently bad. They did right. something wrong. Right. It wasn't until later that I started seeing the context of my life and realized that 
people were placed in positions in which they were more susceptible for certain behaviors. And that motivates my work today. I'm, I'm constantly asking why something occurs and what's the socioeconomic context in which right. these decisions and actions are made and who makes those decisions that um, lays out the setting in which we live. This story so often doesn't end well. Right. And here you are, a big deal at Brookings and a person who is regarded nationally and internationally as a thought leader on really an important part of our understanding about cities and race in America. And I just want to explore for a little bit longer how your story ended well and why you think it did. I know one piece is that your mother, what she couldn't provide and what your guardian couldn't provide, school helped provide for you. Well, when you're poor, you have to rely on the social safety net in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And school was right there for me. I attended Wilkinsburg High School. And although it's been disparaged recently, it actually doesn't exist at this point anymore. For a long period of time, it was considered, the Wilkinsburg School District was considered a good school. So I had a great education. It provided sports. I did every club Mm -hmm. you can imagine. I had father figures all throughout my life, through coaches and teachers. School really saved my life. But I will say this, I'm no different than even my father. My mother, the one that raised me, she had an eighth grade education. Some of the most important people in my life, they don't have a fancy degree. They don't have the bank account I have. Mm -hmm. And they're just as smart, just as capable. And so that's what's more amazing to me, not that I made it, but how many mediocre folks do. Again, that really drives me to say, hey, there are people, there are assets in majority black communities that are just not developed, not invested in, not considered. And my goal is to highlight those strengths in black communities, because if we're constantly looking at people as deficits, we don't invest in deficits or problems. No one does. And so we got to highlight strength because that's what we invest in. Unfortunately, we typically don't see black strength. We treat black institutions, we treat black cities like black people. And so we don't see the real investment. In fact, what we do is we invest in other people to fix them. Education is littered with white saviors. That's the problem. We need direct investment in black cities. I saw firsthand, I ran four charter schools in New Orleans, out of the University of New Orleans. I was the CEO of the Capital One UNO Charter Network. And during that period after Katrina, we invested heavily in white-led organizations, or philanthropy invested heavily, Mm -hmm. still does, in white-led organizations to fix black people. Mm. That is part of the problem. Nothing grows without direct investment, nothing. When philanthropy gives to the same muckety-mucks, you're building capacity for them, not for the communities you're trying to serve. And so, yes, we need greater investment in people who are connected to communities. Now, 
people will say, um, automatically, well, you work at Brookings. You you guys get money from philanthropy, and I, and I would critique that as well. They should scrub who gets the money at Brookings and any other organi- uh, mainstream organization. What kind of work are they doing? Who are they hiring? Who's on their boards? At some point, we've got to invest in black and brown communities. And we certainly have some members of black and brown communities, some folks who are connected on the ground. And if there's only a few of them um, at, at these institutions, by all means, invest in them. But don't go around giving money to organizations that have no direct link to communities. You've said that running a college transition skills camp for children of migrant workers was, quote, the most significant experience that has shaped my career. What did that experience teach you? First of all, what was it? And, yeah, and, it was a student leadership institute yeah. out of the Department of Education at Pennsylvania. So it was a state-led initiative. That and tra- you were how old? I was a freshman in college. Okay. My first real job And I became a camp counselor for this camp that it was a college exposure camp for the children of migrant workers. And there was a student there, Luis Garcia, and he became my fast friend. We were essentially the same age. He went to Penn State, eventually went to Penn State, came back the next year. And I asked him, hey, when you're going back to Penn State, and he told me I'm not going back this year. And I said, well, why? He said, well... I don't have financial aid. I said, why don't you have financial aid? And he said, because I'm undocumented. Mm -hmm. I remember going, wow, this reminds me of my mother, my brothers. Civically, he was my brother. We listened to the same music. We had the same interests. We were the same. Why doesn't he get the same benefits as I do? And so at that point, I started really believing And this notion of our mission in life is to expand family. And it's not just in my Pittsburgh context where I have kids from all over Pittsburgh joining my house. Then it became, oh, I have brothers and sisters in other countries Mm. that should be in my house, that are in my house. I have to have to fight for them, too. And and eventually I got my Ph.D. exploring the DREAM Act. Should undocumented immigrants receive financial aid? It put me on a path where I became a professor. And I owe that to a migrant community. My work, so much of it, was predicated on working for the other. One of your former colleagues at Brookings, Bruce Katz, focused on cities as an engine of renewal and growth in the United States. You have morphed that thinking by making a new core to the work be about equity and how we think differently about cities that are these engines of growth in America. Was that a tough shift for you to lead in the work? No, it wasn't tough at all because the people I love and are connected with are left out of many of the plans that cities construct. Unfortunately, when all people are not included in the planning, you get exclusion. And for me, there's nothing wrong with these concepts of making sure that we mobilize our resources in places that allow for efficiencies. But there's nothing efficient about exclusivity and and segregation. It's very inefficient. That's what I'm trying to break down. It's not a stretch because we know even at Brookings, 
if we don't find ways to become more inclusive, we have to consider ourselves part of the problem. And I'm not going to be at an organization, nor will our leadership be a part of the problem. I think sometimes that our entire country is weirdly suffering from drowning man syndrome. Mm -hmm. We think we're drowning and that therefore we have to grab at whatever opportunity exists and we have to take it no matter whether it's good or bad. And in Appalachia, that's especially a narrative that any hope of renewal or growth is good hope. You know, in our part of the world, I think a lot of that narrative is around fossil fuel extraction, but it also manifests around race, Mm -hmm. where the attempt to talk about equity as an overlay on development is thought of as, well, that's an extraneous consideration. (laughs) What we need is the development. And if we have the development, all boats will rise. (laughs) So what I'd love for you to do is help our listeners understand what is flawed in that thinking. Well, typically when I hear it, all I hear is the abdication of our responsibility to be good neighbors. We have a responsibility to making sure that everyone is included in an economy. We have a long storied history of excluding people and we keep finding excuses to continue that legacy. At some point, someone needs to say the same way we built up East Liberty, we can build up black people in East Liberty. Mm. What's amazing to me when I was on the cross-country team, and I used to run on Penn Avenue from Wilkinsburg through East Liberty, where now the Google headquarters is in in Bakery Square. And and back then, it was the Nabisco factory there. And I really didn't know where the line between Wilkinsburg and Pittsburgh was. I would just smell cookies. And that's how I knew. But Wilkinsburg and Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh didn't look any different. There were black people there. And then we saw the kind of placemaking that occurred in East Liberty for Google and Google workers. This is what Pittsburgh's rebirth looks like. New restaurants, new retail, new jobs, new hope for a neighborhood that has seen its years of bad press. Smaller stores are seeing more traffic these days thanks to Target and Whole Foods. We hope that as people come to the neighborhood, they'll be able to find places to work, places that are inclusive. Places that prove East Liberty is back. And we know that the pale male tech industry is wanting for diversity. So we know how to invest in ways to develop people, to develop talent. We just don't trust black people in that development. So whenever I hear, we don't have the time, it's too risky, it's really because we don't trust black and brown people in this country with our resources, and and that has to change. There's this notion of economic growth that it's okay to leave people behind. And for me, economic growth in the absence of shared prosperity is just oppression. The demolition of Penn Circle Towers and nearby housing projects was a key part in the planned revitalization of the East Liberty neighborhood. 
upscale stores on one side of Penn Avenue now, while many older stores on the other side of Penn Avenue are no longer in business. I can't afford to live there. This is my community. This is part of a gentrification process where we see evictions and rents rising, but it's also tied to the fact that people in these communities are seeing low-wage jobs with horrible conditions, abuses in the workplaces, and things like that. We don't need people pricing us out of our own neighborhoods. A trip maybe a year and a half ago, I ran that same route, and I saw a guy that when we were in high school used to bully me. I said, Frank, hey, it's me, Andre. And he looked so different. He looked depressed. He looked worn. Hmm. And we had a conversation. He's been to prison several times. And he heard about me on Facebook. He said, you're doing well. And I just started talking to him, what you doing? He's like, you know, I'm just out here. I'm just out here. Hmm. And I remember that he was a talented guy. He was an athlete. I just wondered, is there a place for him? As I ran down the street after we talked, I could not see a, a place. What would it look like if we did it differently? And to go back to the phrase you used earlier, we actually trusted black and brown people in this country with resources to be a part of the transition of their communities? Well, certainly in terms of income, you would see folks in poverty start to climb out of poverty. And on the other tail end, you would not see the constant production of millionaires at the level that we're seeing. And so relative poverty would decrease. You would see more public investment in communal goods, so schools, transportation systems, infrastructure, things that will support a community. Mm -hmm. And I can't say this enough. I, a lot of my work is in education, and we're constantly blaming teachers, mm -hmm. blaming mm -hmm. students. But when you look at the investment in education, education, it's wanting. There is a byproduct that comes from people working together, playing together, worshiping together, mm -hmm. and we're not realizing those things. Mm. And when you're poor and you don't have those communal bonds, you really suffer. And it's really because we don't value public goods anymore. Hmm. Our lack of investment is eroding our sense of the public good. Such a powerful sentiment. I, I share that conviction, by the way. It's something so many people miss that we as a society seem culturally to be moving away from a notion that we're all in this together and that we actually have to have the public institutions that keep us bound together in a, in a communal way. Is it also racism? Oh, yeah, yeah I should. It, it seems like yeah. the one thing that we need to put on the table. So talk about that. Yeah. We still operate under a hierarchy of a racial value. Mm -hmm. We still treat black things less than. We still see immigrants as less than. Well, mm -hmm. immigrants who aren't considered our social relatives. Right, 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 right. So, yes, racism is a factor. And, and I'll just give an example. Probably my anchor research project is on the devaluation of housing. Mm -hmm. And so we look at housing prices in black neighborhoods where the share of the population is 50 percent. And we compare those to housing prices where the share of the black population 
population is 1%. And after controlling for education and crime and all, and all those social conditions, we find that homes in black neighborhoods are worth 23% less, about 48000 per home, about $156 billion lost in equity, not because of crime, not because of education, but because of the concentration of race. It, although that's a very real and tangible thing that robs people and communities of the resources they need, it's also a metaphor for how we devalue black institutions, black leadership. Mm-hmm. It's about getting at that core racism. If we can see not only are we hurting people, but we are hurting ourselves. Yeah, And, and this is what we're at a, a, a critical juncture in society. And I'll be very clear, the Trump administration is creating divides that will be hard to overcome. The society is becoming more violent, is evident in the synagogue shooting a year ago that we're starting to look at each other um, suspiciously. We're going backwards because of the rhetoric, because of this lack of investment in the public good. And it can get worse, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. It can get worse. We've got to figure out ways to get back to this principle of we're all in this together. Because black people and brown people are dying because of it. Mm -hmm. And people will point to, oh, there's more violence in the hood, blah, blah. You know, bad health care, bad education, bad transportation systems have killed so many more people than gun violence. Systemically, black people are hurting for this. So I I have no choice but to fight for good things. (laughs) So that's what keeps my energy up. That's what keeps me positive because, you know, I'm just tired of negativity. So whenever I hear great stories and, and I see great examples of people doing good work, I just get excited. And especially if I see people working across Um, racial lines, a religion, class. That's what America is supposed to be about. One of the things that I admire about you is that you are able to do something that I think is too rare in Pittsburgh and probably in a lot of American communities. You're willing to call out hypocrisy where you see it, Mm -hmm. and you get away with it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And maybe it's because you're at Brookings. One of the ways that you've done that, in fact, is you wrote that cities like Pittsburgh can't herald inclusive innovation without stepping up to protect black lives like Antoine Rosa's from police. So you make a direct connection between police violence and the economy. And I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about that. Suppressing black people has been a growth model in Pittsburgh. We are so comfortable staying with this narrative that black people are broken, Mm -hmm. and if they're Mm -hmm. not achieving, then we need to punish them. And it's almost an ethic in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Punish black people until they do as they are told, knowing that black achievement will never meet white racist standards. Mm -hmm. But now that I'm at Brookings, I can see from the economic development opportunities here, the economic development plans, who's actually at the table. Right. And it's not black 
people. Mm. Yes, there always has been have been um, a few individuals, and I might be that one token Negro, the magical Negro that comes along. However, if I'm there, I'm going to call out the hypocrisy right. that it's impossible to have growth without inclusion. It is not growth. It is oppression. People need to feel badly about what's happening in in Pittsburgh. When Antoine gets shot, you need to feel pain. Mm -hmm. That we are linked, whether you like it or not, and there's blood on the hands of people who don't believe in inclusion. Unemployment claims have hit a 45-year low. And something I'm very proud of, African-American unemployment stands at the lowest rate ever recorded. So you mentioned President Trump earlier. And I think he thinks that he's doing great things for black people. In fact, in a Twitter war with Jay-Z, President Trump posted, somebody please inform Jay-Z that because of my policies, black unemployment has just been reported to be at the all caps, lowest rate ever recorded. Now, you were quick to respond about how misleading that statement was, citing that we are experiencing two economies, one for white people and one for black people. How do you counter claims like that coming from the president of the United States that everything is hunky-dory? Yeah, you know, there, there's this metric of full employment that is essentially saying that there's more jobs than people, and it uses the unemployment rate, um, which is at, at its lowest point in history for all groups. But I always remind people there was a time when blacks were at full employment, um, and that wasn't a good time for black oh, people. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Of course, I'm alluding to slavery, but historically, the black unemployment rate has almost always been, since we've recorded it, twice that of whites. And so when you look under the hood of the unemployment rate, you see incredible white growth Mm. and you see black employment in service to that white growth Mm. to say, look at what we're giving you. That's what I hear from Don Trump. Look what we gave you. Mm-hmm. We gave you Uber jobs. We gave you work in the convenience store. Mm-hmm. No, a good economy would eradicate the employment disparities we see. In addition, when you look in cities in particular, that unemployment rate, that gross rate masks the unemployment of racial groups and in different regions. And so you can see blacks in a recession in cities. And so, yes, in the aggregate, America's doing fine. But what we're seeing is black people are working in service to white growth. And I just will not accept that. We, no one should. Yeah. So your upcoming book yep. is titled Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. You touch on the subject in a recent magazine interview where you cite a study you've done in Birmingham related to historically black college and university graduates versus the number of black-owned businesses in the city. Tell us a little bit about what you found, because this is such an interesting contrast. Yeah, you, when you go to cities, not just Birmingham, and they'll say, we can't find black workers. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. We can't find folks who um, have the skills. We've or, never heard that one here. But. <laughs> it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And particularly in a place like Birmingham that is surrounded by HBCUs. Right. And HBCUs, more than a third of their graduates are STEM grads and or business grants. So these are historically black colleges and universities That's and right. a third. In this study that I did, I literally counted the number of people that could potentially work in places like Birmingham. Birmingham and other places have no excuse right. because they're surrounded by rich talent pools. We can count and I can find them for you. This ridiculous notion, we can't find people. Again, that's the abdication of responsibility for working with other communities. It's a lack of trust. You see this in Pittsburgh. We'll go to the the same old institutions, go to the same well, knowing that they don't produce black and brown people. Why do we keep going to them? And I tell you, when you stop going to that well, when you stop investing in these organizations, they change behavior. Hmm. We have to stop rewarding institutions that are exclusive. I can see what I'm telling you. They're going to double what you paid for. They ain't going to give you no $10,000 on top of that. Then they can't have my building. I figure that $25,000 is cheap. I figure they closing me out, forcing me to move. They ought to pay me for that. I don't care what the building's worth or how much I bought it for. You've used August Wilson's Two Trains Running to illustrate the meaningfulness of the work you do. Yeah. Given that he comes from Pittsburgh, I love that connection. But tell us about it. Yeah, my, my, the book titles Know Your Price, and it's paraphrasing a refrain in the play Two Trains Running, as you mentioned, by August Wilson, which is my favorite play. And in the play, the main character, Memphis, is about to have his property seized by the URA before the construction of the Civic Arena. And they offer for his restaurant $15,000. And the main character, Memphis, tells the city, no, I'm not selling my property. I'm paraphrasing. I know my price. Mm. I got my price. Mm. And it goes, it's a refrain, goes back and forth throughout the play. But there's actually a happy ending that the main character, Memphis, after going back and forth with the city, gets $35,000. For me, the, the moral of the story is clear that, one, you have to know that you have worth. But... You also must know your price. What will you stand for? I fancy my work giving people both the sense that they have worth, but also I try my best to give them their price. So how do you inspire them to do that when everything we've discussed is just a mountain of challenges? How do you help people also connect with inspiration? Well, this is what's important about narrative. Before growing up, I never told the story about my father. Mm -hmm. I never Mm -hmm. told my upbringing. And now I see how important it is Mm -hmm. for an (laughs) eight-year-old who looks like me, Mm -hmm. who has the same story, Mm -hmm. to hear and see that it took a woman demanding her price, fighting for her children, doing whatever it takes. That's our tradition. That's who we are. We will find a way in every Every bit of progress that has been made has been because of that ethic. We've demanded it. There's still a long way to go, but I find comfort 
in the demand. Mm. I love using the assets that are at my disposal, whatever I have, to seek out structural change. This is not bootstrapping I'm talking about. Right. No, right I'm not right. talking about bootstrapping. I'm saying that we've got to use the strengths that we know that we have. My mother was an asset. Right. She was an asset. I need to now take her family story and use it as a way to mobilize others who share the same background so that they can demand the services that I didn't receive and that they're not receiving. I look at data all day and the data looks bleak. But when I look at the teacher, I look at the practitioner, my mother, (laughs) there I find lots of hope. Mm And so for me, it's, it's about your position. And as a scholar, when I'm at Brookings, I never stay so high where I can't see people doing real work. Mm. When I'm looking at that engineer, that bus driver, that teacher, that mother taking care of kids, oh, I see lots of hope. I have to. Mm-hmm. Not because they, they are instilling dreams and building up capacity. It may not be at the scale that we like to see, but oh, I get energized Mm. because I see my mother doing the work that's necessary and I have to be inspired. I also see my biological mother making the sacrifice to give me up. Mm -hmm. There are lots of people sacrificing and we see this as a negative without realizing the end result. I had two mothers from up high. They looked poor, destitute. They didn't have a future. They did phenomenal work with me and countless others. You have to find hope in that. Now, we must work to get that at a scale <laughs> like that. And that's where we need to push down the pedal and demand change. I have a, a saying that I, I use all the time. There's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. <laughs> that yeah. we always yeah. have to work towards breaking down these policies. Right. But the people who are doing the work need to be validated. They have to be. Andre, That's it's such a strong note to end on. I really want to thank you. I want to thank you for weaving together the policy world with the deeply personal and the emotional. The name of our podcast is We Can Be, and we'd like to end by asking you to complete that kind of incomplete thought. We can be what? We can be all in this together. Great. Love it. Andre said, know your price, know your value. Andre is making it his life's work to ensure that everyone, no matter where you're from or what you do, has both the information and inspiration needed to understand your value and believe in your worth. He said, quote, we know racial bias exists because we can count. Andre is using his brilliance, his personality, his compassionate inner compass to lessen inequity and help everyone count. 